my life. I'm 48 years old, and I've lived in 20 different homes or apartments. That does not include nine months spent in a caravan traveling throughout the United States of America. So, so 20 plus one caravan that w- was in fair parks and showgrounds and RV parks and those kind of things. And, and one of the things that's interesting about thinking about all those different places, and we've heard this before, that a house is not always a home, but a home is where people are that you love. That that's what makes a house a home, is love. And I've been lucky in that all 20 of those, plus the RV, have been a home. They've not just been a house. They've not just been a place that I can go to and sit and rest and, and uh, you know, cook and those kind of things that have some sort of operational function. But there were a place where I felt loved and known and understood, where there have been things that have taken place in my life that have been hard, but somebody has cared for me. Now, I recognize that's not everybody. I recognize that that's not what everybody has dealt with. At some point, maybe they have had houses, but currently they don't. Or perhaps even some have had houses, but they feel like they've never really had a home. And so when we hear this Psalm 23, as David is wrapping it up for us, and he says that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, we can carry things into that and and be nervous or be excited as we step into that. It could be a place for us to have, yes, the house of the Lord, and it's going to be great because all of our houses have been homes. And we recognize that as a place of love. The other side, though, is that it could be a very anxiety-filled, stressful situation. And so when we hear that we'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever, and we think, well, a house is not that great of a place. As a matter of fact, in my life, I tried to get out of my house as soon as I could because I didn't want to be there anymore. What I hope will happen as we go through this passage is that God can step in in His loving pursuit to redeem that for you. That He can take it and know and understand and say, I want to have compassion and I hear that a house is not a place of comfort or love for you. That it's not a home, but that it is a place of fear and anxiety and hurt. And let me take those wounds and bind them up and let the tears that you cry be tears that I cry over you so that I can restore your understanding and vision that I have a place of love for you. So as we begin, if you don't mind, I'd like to pray for that. Father, house and home can be hard, and we want to acknowledge that. And say some of us are lucky, and we give thanks that that we have been raised in, in places that are filled with love, but others have not. And so we want to come to You, Father, and Spirit, we ask that You will restore, that You will give comfort and peace, that in hearing about dwelling in the house of the Lord, that it won't cause us to worry or turn around or or run away, but it will bring us to an understanding of Your loving, steadfast pursuit of us. That You know us and You want to return us to whole relationship with Yourself, with You and who You are as Creator of the universe, as the One who has willed and called us to be Your sons and daughters. 
And so I ask that you will give comfort to those who are hurting today when they even hear the word house. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we've been looking at the 23rd Psalm, and I just want to read you the conclusion of Harold Kirshner's book on this. He says this, the author of the 23rd Psalm, who has been meditating on all the good things God does for him, has saved the best for last. The God who has provided him with a peaceful, livable world, who has stilled the raging waters around him and within him, who has led him through the valley of the shadow of death, and has also given him the ultimate gift. He has invited him into his home, into his presence, that he might live all of his days in the presence of God. God has said to him in his bereavement as he's languished in the valley of the shadow of death, he has said, you have lost someone you love, but you have found me. You have discovered what I'm really about. Not the God of fairy tales or contrived happy endings, but the God who said to Abraham and to Joseph and to Moses and to the saints and the strivers in every generation, fear not, for I will be with you. You have found me, and I will not abandon you. And so the reality is, is when we look at this passage and we understand that God has invited us into His home, it then leads us back to that understanding of surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That surely, beyond belief, now don't call me Shirley, Shirley. Surely, beyond belief, no doubt about it, it's going to happen and it is happening. That God is allowing goodness and mercy to follow me. I think we need to understand the word follow two ways. That word follow, when we look at the Hebrew word that, that it was written in by, by David, it really has a sense not of just passively walking behind, but it has a sense of pursuit. So what God is saying here through David is that surely God's goodness and God's mercy will be pursuing us as we walk in our lives that it is running after us, that it can't get enough of us. It, it calls to mind the parable of the prodigal son and reminds us that the father who is looking for his son every day, when he sees him coming, he doesn't wait for him to be there, but he runs out to greet him. That's the type of pursuit that we're talking about. Can't wait to get to that presence to give them goodness and mercy. So that's one way we need to understand it. And as we think about the next way, we should probably define what we mean by goodness and mercy. So goodness, what is being talked about there is a righteous life. But not just a righteous life in the sense of obeying the rules and ticking them all. Because all of us know that we're terrible at that. I mean, we're really good at obeying and ticking the rules that we like. <laughs> that we think are the ones that are good laws and good rules, but all the other ones that we can set aside or that we assume other people need to follow, but not me, we don't necessarily go to that. So it's not a ticking of the rules, 
but it is an understanding that God's goodness and righteousness prevails. That it's a righteousness that seeks justice for all. That it's a, a righteousness that doesn't look at others based on their circumstances or how they are currently, but sees the broad picture of who everyone is, knowing that they are children of the Creator. And that within them they possess the very image of God. And so because of that, it causes God to pursue them and move towards them because they have the opportunity to have that righteousness. That God says, I know you won't live up to this. I know that you can't meet this, but I will do it for you. So that's the first understanding of goodness. It's God's righteousness. Now the understanding of mercy is this great word called hesed. And in it, it really means steadfast love. So surely goodness, righteousness, and God's steadfast love will be pursuing me all the days of my life. That there's nothing that you or I can do that can get out of the way of God's pursuit of us. That He is coming for us. Much like a mangy cat that follows us. I know people love cats, I'm sorry. Not all cats are mangy. But a mangy cat that follow us around, that we just can't get rid of. But every time we walk out of our house, it's there, following us around. And we wonder why it's there. And we think, go away, but it stays there. At least that's the way Annie Lamont in her book, Traveling Mercies, tells of her encounter with God. That it was like this cat that just kept walking behind her and walking behind her. And then finally she said, come in. She said it a little bit more colorfully than that, and you can look that up in her book. But she said, come in. Because he is pursuing with his steadfast love. Revealing to you his true character and your true character. That you're not made for hostility. That you're not made for division. But that God made you for love. So that's the first way we understand this follow. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. But perhaps more importantly is an understanding of what it means to have it follow us. How many of you have ever been on a boat and you notice the wake that goes behind you as you're going? And it just causes a ripple effect behind you. Now, if you're a water skier, then you love that because it gives you the ability to have fun and go up and over the wake and you try and get outside of the wake and inside of the wake. But it just kind of goes behind you. It's just natural because the boat is moving forward. And in some ways, when we think about surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of our lives, it should be that as God pursues us, we begin to walk towards Him. And in walking towards Him, that love and that mercy, that goodness, that righteousness that is coming towards us and being pursuing us through God hits us and it moves off of us and flows behind us. So that in fact we are a conduit. We are the ones that are pushing out even further as it hits us individually. We make it expand further out because that water hits that boat, you know, and the boat cuts through it and it just spreads it out. When we receive it, that's what God does. And so we become those who have goodness and mercy following us. But it's not out of duty. The Talmud tells this story of a vineyard owner 
who had a worker that worked for them who broke this really expensive cast of wine. And because he has the ability to do it, he takes that, that man to court and says, you need to pay for this. But the judge looks at them all and here's the answer. And this is what the, the, the judge says. Clearly the law is on your side and you're entitled to damages. But this worker is a poor man. Not only has he no money to pay you, he depends on his daily wage from you to feed his family. You're not only a wealthy man, but you're widely known to be a pious man or a man of belief. The court cannot compel you but it would urge you to act on the basis of hesed, of mercy. Not only to drop the charges, but to pay your worker his daily wage. It may diminish your wealth slightly, but it will enrich you in other ways. Think of it as a small step towards making the world a nicer place. And may God forgive you for your mistakes as you forgive your hired man. The Talmud goes on to say that the man complied to the request Here's the thing. Oftentimes, we get trapped in this thought that we have to do something in order to have God pursue us. That we have to be living right for God to be able to see it, recognize it, and bestow on us, yes, you're living right. I'll come towards you. You're now good enough to hang out with me, the creator of the universe. And in doing that, we change our view of the people around us and begin to say, you're not living right enough, but you are, and I like you, but I don't like you. And we think it's okay because that's how we perceive God. But what David is telling us here is no, that God is the one who pursues us, follows us, chases after us with His mercy and His goodness, with His righteousness and His steadfast love. And there is no reason that God would give us His steadfast love other than the fact that it is who God is. He almost can't help Himself to do it because it's who He is. And in doing that, when we begin to recognize that that is who God is, then we can't help but be the conduit. We can't help but move into the place where we are looking around us saying, who can I show goodness and mercy too. And it's no longer out of obligation. I can't compel you to do this, the judge says, but I encourage you to act on the steadfast love of God. Nothing will compel us to change ourselves and our views of seeing others as with us and not against us other than the fact that God loves us both. And so, we recognize that to be able to step into the house of God, to be in that place where we are with Him forever, is not anything that we're doing. But it is the love of God that pursues us, and then we show to all others. So think for a minute. How do you show goodness and mercy to those around? Let's start with people outside of your immediate life. Just out there, how do you show them God's goodness and mercy? I dare say it might be easier to show them that. You don't have to encounter them that often. 
you can actually just pray for them or send money their way and it feels good. But as we continue to get closer and closer into our hearts and closer and closer into our sphere of influence, then we begin to recognize that it's those people that are closest to us, that that desire to show them goodness and mercy becomes more and more difficult. And interestingly enough, God says, I want that to be the case. Because I don't want you to be in your own little one-bedroom apartment by yourself. I want you to be in my house. And in my house, I have all my people. (laughs) In my house, you are surrounded by people. In my house, you can't get away. I'm sorry, introverts, I know that's scary to hear. You can't get away. There are always people, they will always be there, and there will always be those that you connect with automatically, and there will always be those that you think, how could I ever connect with this person? And here's the key. God is pursuing you and them at the same time. And you begin to allow that mercy and that righteousness, that justice and that love of God pour off of you and it gets on them. And at the same time, they're doing the same thing and it gets on you. And you begin to live life together in a new dimension, in a new way, revolutionary, loving one another, regardless of faults, because we've committed to what? We've committed to being in the house of the Lord forever. Francis of Assisi wrote this prayer. And it's actually how I'm going to close the sermon today. Because I think it is our prayer, it should be our prayer, as we walk this path of being God's goodness and mercy to all that we encounter. He says this, Lord, make me an instrument of Thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen and amen. Let me pray. Father, hear these words, let them be yours. If they're not, allow them to burn up and go away. But if they are, let them grow deep in the roots of our heart. Let them bear fruit for you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Could you stand and sing as we...